Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome back to Podside. I'm here with uh, Carlo, and uh, Carlo and uh, a new friend for me, but I, I believe that it has some connections to Carlo. Uh, it's Michelle Lichand. Is that right? Yes, that is right. Okay. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's a, it's a real pleasure to have you here. And uh, we're here to talk about a lot of things, but one thing will be Michelle's favorite book. No. Uh, the- <laughs> no, 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 do not put that on my, look, oh, wow, we're, we're going, we're going straight in, aren't we? Going, going right off the gate so that. Okay, so um, I, I was going to try and explain the backstory, but I think maybe you guys should sort of piece it together first, so. Okay. Uh, Carlo, Michelle reached out to you, and what did he say, and then, Michelle, where did you get the book from? Carl, do you want to go first? Uh, okay, so um, as a uh, like, I had been on Michelle's podcast, uh, the Full Metal Analyst podcast, and as a sort of as part of the conversation offline, uh, I asked him if he wanted to come on and and you know and promote his podcast, and so he wanted to sort of meet us halfway and said, "Well, you know what? Um, I don't want to sort of mess with your formula. Let me." Uh, recommend a book and I, and we can discuss that book um, online, you know, with you guys on the Podside Picnic podcast. And um, if I remember correctly, your first choice wasn't this one. It was another it was one. Uh, could you tell me a little bit or remind me what the title and author are? Yeah. So originally when you invited me, I was like, I want to bring a little bit of Brazilian sci-fi. I'm from Brazil. And I do think that, uh, a problem that we have in Brazil is that we have this complex where we just treat our own culture like crap and we just talk about other people people's cultures. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to bring some Brazilian sci-fi. And I was like, let's go right back to the origin. So originally I wanted to bring this book by a guy called Jerônimo Monteiro, um, which is basically this very H.D. Wells-inspired book called uh, Three Months in the 81st Century, which is literally a time travel fantasy where it's a protagonist talking with A.G. Wells as a character. Hmm. Like, A.G. Wells was super influential for early Brazilian sci-fi writers. Interesting. That's very cool. Yeah. yeah. Did uh, not uh, find that book. <laughs> <laughs> which, which book did you find, Michelle? So instead I went, you know, and instead I found out that, like, one of Brazil's most celebrated children's authors uh, is this guy called Monteiro Lobato. Like, he is literally one of Brazil's... Um, Shall we say idols? He wrote this children's book series called The Yellow Woodpecker Ranch, Sítio do Pica Amarelo, which has been adapted to television multiple times. Everybody knows it. Uh, when I was a kid, I started reading. I went to the Monteiro Lobato Library. Like, he was a very big presence in my childhood. And I found out that he wrote a book, a sci fi book inspired by H.G. E. Wells. And I was like, man, that's a great idea. <laughs> and then, <laughs> so the book is called. So the Portuguese name of the book is O Presidente Negro, O Choque das Raças, which the rough translation is The Black President or The Racial Shock, which has been translated to America's Black President uh, 2228. And basically, it's a book about um, the United States in the year 2228, and it's about their first black president. Again, this book was written in 1926. Which should have been, you know, a giveaway that it was going to be really racist. (laughs) But in my foolishness, I read the synopsis and I was like, you know what? This sounds racist, but maybe it's not 
that racist? <laughs> and I was wrong. I was so wrong. Um, America's <laughs> Black President is a work of a full-throated veneration of eugen, eugen, oh my God, eugenics and yep. racism. And, <laughs> and it's so disgusting. It is really, really fucking bad. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't know if I, we should we can swear, but no, like, there, oh. there's swears are fully allowed. You absolutely and, fucking can. Oh my god! And, <laughs> and also in 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 response to this fucking piece of trash, <laughs> <laughs> yes, like this is not only a very racist book; it's a bad book. <laughs> because the pitch of the book is here's what happens in the future United States they only get to that like halfway through the book <laughs> yes. for the first, yeah for the first 50% of the book you're following this guy this random guy who works for a company who I don't know what they do I did I think he they make car parts or something and then he gets in a car accident and he finds this r random doctor who somehow invented a way to look into the future and then the guy spends four chapters explaining how he looks into the future with some absolute nonsense like start <laughs> like the kind of stuff that Star Trek would look at the Doctor Who would look like and go you should ease up a little because this makes no sense. <laughs> and then, well, and go go ahead. Well, no, no, well, no. I'm just laughing over here, man. <laughs> one, of, one of the things that really struck me about that whole framing device, like beyond all the racism, of course, let's just take a moment and put the racism <laughs> yes, on the side. Yes. Well, the whole thing that bad scientist was talking about is that everything is predestined there are, and there are all, all are no choices. And so, therefore, things just sort of happen naturally. So, like, given that, like, who gives a shit whether you can see in the future or not, right? It's not yeah. going to change your behavior. It's predestined. Yeah. So, and that's the problem. The whole book feels like somebody telling you a story, but that person telling you a story is a virulent racist. And, <laughs> and, and they're just telling you this and making comments along the way about how, isn't this cool and fun how white people have sterilized black people oh. in the 20th, in <laughs> 2,228? Like oh, with man. hair dryers. Like yeah. it's bizarre. <laughs> so, so oh. yes. And, and we haven't even got to the part of like, it's not the mad science that tells the protagonist what happens in the future. It's his daughter because the mad science scientist dies. And then his daughter starts telling him the story. And the reason I got this book is because in 2008, when Obama was running for, uh, for president, this book got republished in, in Brazil because they were like, oh, you know, there's a black president coming up. Let's try to get on top of that. And I, and I feel like... <laughs> If there's one thing this book gets wrong is how America gets a black president, because there's actually some things it gets kind of right. Like they talk about working from home and they, he basically talks about the Internet without the Internet. Like he says there's going to be radio teletransportation tra of information, that radio is going to get so advanced that people are just going to work from home. And you're reading it and you're like, wow, that makes sense. And then he's like, yeah, so... Um, Chinese people are going to take over Europe because they eat less and they fuck more. And like, <laughs> like, whoa, dude. I, I, I was just like sitting there uh, aghast because it's like, and I noticed that the, it, all the people in Paris looked like yellow and you're like, oh no. no I, yeah. Oh no. I, I believe the word was mongoloid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was mongoloid. I, yeah, I didn't, yeah, I, I didn't want to get into that, but okay. <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, no, oh. it's all good. It's, go, so, it's all good. Carlo, I have a request quest for you just because we're such good buddies uh could you describe the uh various political parties in this book oh please uh 
I, you know, I, um, I'm not sure that my brain retained that information, but I do recall there was a woman party, yeah, a man party. Uh, Adam Carolla would be very, very happy about this. He would. Um, a, a what was it? A Negro party? Yeah, if I'm remembering correctly. And w- was there anything else? I am. I am blanking here. Well, the women party was usually called the Elfin Party, and it was yeah. because women were trying to turn themselves into men because they wouldn't get raped as much or something. Yeah, and also there's this whole thing throughout the book where, where in the future, the professor's daughter says that like women have gotten to a point where they're like it's not that they're equal to men; they're completely different species to men, and it's and it's like this kind of a. Uh, insane feminism going wrong situation where it just it just feels like this person is literally like what is the most like they he made an exercise in racism like what is the most racist and sexist thing i could possibly write at this moment and he, he wrote this he predict he pre- oh my goodness he predicted the internet he predicted <laughs> uh, a black president uh, 220 yeah. years a little off by 220 years but he also predicted the writing of men are from mars and women are from <laughs> venus oh, it's God. amazing I do think it's funny that, like, if there's one thing this book got right, is that white women would rather ally with white men than with black people. <laughs> well, I, I, but but that I think that that's the thing that we're starting to see here is that generally speaking, the people that are your rivals or enemies politically tend to have a very valid critique of sort of your side of things sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, or at least it's a, a broken clock uh, syndrome, you know. Yeah. Uh, did, I I wanted to um. Just uh, give a tiny taste. And this isn't particularly as racist or anything like oh, that. Oh, you have highlights? I also have highlights. I do have oh. highlights. <laughs> um, Guys, I'm so glad you do because I didn't have it in me. Uh, honestly, I was just like, like, just my, my notes to some of these were like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know? um, so uh, what is it? This is uh, sometime... I believe this is when the daughter of the scientist is opening up the sort of the the speech. And she says um, to our protagonist, you have to understand American idealism is not the Latin kind of idealism we inherit. It is their own specific to them and cannot be implanted in peoples not endowed with these racial characteristics. Their idealism is inherent. Ours is utopian. Look at France. Study up on the French convention. A permanent session of incandescent utopianism and the calamities it brought on. Why was that? Because it was unattainable against human nature. Now look at America. At all the pivotal moments of its history, innate idealism, pragmatic idealism, the exploration of possibilities that square with the human nature always win. I my note to that was that uh, someone in Brazil had swallowed the American myth hook line and sinker. <laughs> so so this is the good moment for us to get into the context of the book. So in the 1920s, Montero Lobato he wanted to go to the United States and like be rich in the United States. He started a, a publishing company called Two P Publishing Company, and he was like he wrote this book specifically because he was like I want to write the book that will make the most money in the American market possible. And he wrote this. He wrote this piece of racist screed. He wrote the Turner Diaries. He, he wrote the Turner Diaries. Like, he literally, he wrote this because he was like, I want to make as much money as possible in the United States. And so- I think there's, I, I found this letter where he told a friend that, like, he said, like, oh, you know, I came here too late. 
I should have come back on the time when they lynched black people. And I was like, dude, oh, what God. the fuck? <laughs> oh, my well, God. Well, oh. you know, he, he looked, he, he studied, he did some research on the U.S. and said, you know what? I need to get a little more racist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to sell this book. And it's like, holy shit, dude. That What's is funny uh, is I kind of think he dumbed down our political system a little did. bit. Just, just because people would be like, what? This is ridiculous and not believable. You know? He did. He did. In the translator's uh, notice, he explains how, because Brazil doesn't have the system you guys have, uh, we do this thing, it's very weird, where we vote and then we tally the votes and whoever gets the most votes is the president. Whoa, it's, slow it's a down, dude. What? <laughs> <laughs> See, this is, this is why Latin American idealism is just not right. <laughs> you just count all the votes? What, the, what kind of cockamamie system is that? So yeah, so but don't the trans- worry, ours will work out, right? Because yeah, I'm oh, yeah. optimistic. <laughs> I, I, got, I got news for you. So the translator, <laughs> he said that like Montero Lobato, he dumbed down the system because he was worried about his Brazilian readers not understanding why you wouldn't vote for the president. And there's this anecdote he brings up about how Brazilian people, when they opened the newspapers in 1926, they would see like 99% turnout in the vote. Uh, and sure, you know, women couldn't vote and black people couldn't vote and all that, but it was 99%. And he's, and Montero Lavato was like, if I do that, Americans are going to laugh at me because the idea of 99% people voting is too radical for them. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this book says a lot about, <laughs> it says, it's like, if you look under this book's surface, which honestly, I don't think you should, you should throw it in the trash. Bad book. <laughs> uh, if you look under this <laughs> what this book says about America is really fucked up. <laughs> that somebody looked at it from the outside and went, this is what they want. Like, this. This is what they want. You know, well, I'm, I'll go I, ahead, Carla. I, I was just going to say that there's another there's another quote here that I have. And I, I was just like sitting there like just looking at it. And I keep on looking at it. And it makes less and less sense where he's talking about Henry Ford. Uh, yes, and this oh. is again the 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 daughter of the of the uh, of the scientist. Now, um, Michelle, if I'm remembering correctly, was it in Brazil that Ford had the? Um, yeah, that's the Fordlandia. Fordlandia. He tried to build a, a city in uh, in the Amazon, and uh, thanks for putting that hook in because I'll get back to that in the other thing. <laughs> oh, cool, cool. So anyway, um, so anyway. The, the the thing is, when Ford proved that there's no hostility between capital and labor, but rather misunderstanding, proven by means of his fantastic achievement, people quickly understood. Industry, up until, a, up until then a Moloch, a devourer of the producing class, and of that class which consumes for the benefit of the owners of the means of production, has since become the most harmonious of all partnerships. Yes, yes, union-loving Henry Ford. <laughs> I thought I was really surprised because this book starts off with a, this our protagonist who's basically just a worker straight up being like, I don't get the fruit of my labor. You know, I don't get paid fairly. He, this book is surprisingly, I wouldn't say class conscious, just like mm-hmm. mildly class aware yeah. of the way things work. So the point where I was like, man, it's weird how much some of this of this stuff is actually right. Like him talking about 
there's this moment where he talk, he gets super excited to get a car. Like the first three chapters are about him getting a car. I was going to point that out that it, it does actually, he does actually understand sort of the absurdity of like what you're going to get into. Like the dude gets a car and they immediately give him a raise. Yeah. Because, <laughs> because they're like, oh, he has a car. Clearly we have to give him a raise. <laughs> And so, yeah, you know, like he, he, the, 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 the protagonist understands that you have to have like these um, symbols of ostentation to look like your boss, yeah. and uh, therefore that wags the dog in a sense. Uh, but of course, uh, later on, because he totals the car, has an accident, and actually ends up at this castle where the doctor and his. Uh, the the racist doctor and his racist, his racist daughter, daughter live. <laughs> uh, he he obviously understands well now. My car is totaled. They're gonna they're gonna cut cut my pay now, aren't they? And he's right. <laughs> yeah, he actually the reason why he stays in the castle is he's like I don't want to go back to being just a normal employee. It's like I there's also this moment that I thought was actually I hate to use this word but good where he's sitting in. <laughs> a garden and he's looking at nature and in that moment he realizes that like the company that for most of his life has been his entire world means absolutely nothing to to the real world mm -hmm. like the company is just a company and he has much more to gain about being in nature about being out there with his fellow men and it's all these it's these little moments there's there's so many of these like little moments of startling awareness not just about class, but also about how racist he's being. There's this moment I thought that was very interesting. Again, I'm not going to try to say that he was not racist. He was very much racist. But there's this paragraph when they're talking about the mass sterilization of black people. When the protagonist goes and says, To have no future, to fade away, how excruciating a sensation to that mass of 100 million entities to have their future cut away from them. And then right after he says, then again, what a wonderful blooming the white man could now have in America. Multiply freely in that prodigious can canon. Oh my God. Yes, I remember this part. It's a, so uh, this feels a little bit, after all of this, it feels a little about, about uh, complaining about the author's haircut. But yeah. did you notice the ableism? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Well, yeah. the the first the first uh, round of sterilizations and eliminations were for the uh, what was it? I don't remember the old timey uh, racist word that they used in this one. Was it the feebled? Yeah, feeble minded. I think. Yeah. And it, yeah. yeah. But like the 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 mad scientist who developed the ability to predict predict the future, like had uh, a whole staff of mute people as yeah. his servants. And um, oh, no, 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 point, they weren't mute. They weren't mute. They were just silent. And the protagonist called them dumb. So, you know, we're kind of <laughs> oh, getting into that. <laughs> I thought they were literally like dumb, like they couldn't speak. OK, that's they don't get any lines, but there's moments where he mentions that they do speak. Uh, OK, so mm. in that part is him just being an asshole. Then. <laughs> but the other thing is like that when they started talking about the Internet, it is like, well, now now newspapers and stuff are projected onto a wall in your home. And isn't that great? And he's like, well, what happens to the blind? And and and, you know, the the daughter of the scientist is like, well, fuck the blind. They got left behind and they just keep going. <laughs> Yeah, that that I mean, and that's the thing. I think that the central, like the linchpin of this whole uh, work, is the idea of 
like eugenics uh, and, you know, race science and whatnot, but mainly eugenics where it's like, yeah. oh, this is this is what that would look like. And uh, I, I don't know if he espoused any of these views personally, but he does a really good job of convincing me that maybe he does. So I well, did some research on that. And so the thing about Montero Lobato, and this was a really big moment of like the veil being lifted from my childhood, um, is that there is this character he created called Jeka Tattoo. And Jeka Tattoo is kind of like... When I was taught about him, I was taught about him as like this character he created to expound the value of getting vaccinations, of better hygiene, of like sanitation and all that. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. But when you look at Jacques Tattoo, he is like this racist caricature of a redneck who walks around without shoes. And that's why he gets sick all the time, because he gets diseases from the dirty ground. And it's this little like racist creed against the people the dumb people from the from farms and not from the cities and it's this moment where i was like wow like this guy may not have said it but he was straight up racist as fuck like (laughs) yellow woodpecker ranch had a character who was literally like a black a black woman who i'm not sure if i remember this correctly but i'm pretty sure it was kind of implied that this woman used to be a slave and she missed it and i was like how the hell do we not talk about this <laughs> in school it's <laughs> oh like God. this guy is one of brazil's biggest literary icons like right. to this day and here he is writing this crap disgusting right. crap well, well i i did want to point out that um in part as we've been talking about this i've been sort of mentally checking off certain things mainly because Puerto Rico has a lot of these same qualities and granted Puerto Rico is not a sovereign country it's a territory of the US but it has internalized a lot of these sort of colonial mindsets that for instance yes stuff from the US is viewed by a certain sector of the population as being of more value that uh, whiteness has more value than any other and granted I don't think anybody in Puerto Rico is really white white um but, you know, they value that as something that to be attained. Um, and all of these things are, I think, to a certain degree, sort of like this internalized colonialism that is being now put on display. And I don't know what, you know, like Montero Lobato's uh, specific politics were back in the day, but it's not looking good. And, and I mean, if we tie it together with, do you, do you have family that are living in Brazil right now, Michelle? We do. I do. So, I mean, given the situation there right now, I, okay. I, I, I wonder if that's simply something that's been around for a long time. It has. It has. Um, if you want to understand Brazil, there's this line I often repeat. I wish I remember. I'm just going to figure out who said it. But it's from, uh, it's from the, I think it was the late great composer... I'm reading this, sorry. I think he was the late composer, Tom Jobim, who composed a lot of classic uh, tunes, who said, Brazil is not for beginners. And that is a really good way to symbolize Brazil. Uh, if you want to, if you look at Brazil right now and you're asking, like, how the hell did, did this country go from Lula, who was an ostensibly very, very progressive president, to 
Bolsonaro, who is literally an ex-military guy who's like, hey guys, remember that military dictatorship? Why, why do we do that again? How did we get from that to that in less than 10 years? And you have to understand that like, this stuff did not go away. This stuff has been in Brazil's DNA from the beginning, be it slavery has been in Brazil's DNA from the beginning. For a long time, our presidents were chosen by two cities in like this big out and about oligarchy. Like they, it was literally just two cities choosing who's going to be the president. And we were just like, oh yeah, that's just part of our history. Like at no point there has been some kind of desire by Brazil to uh, analyze its origins, its past. And I don't think there's be a better example of that than the fact that like people like Bolsonaro are popular now because when the military dictatorship ended, it ended with the condition that no, none of the military people could ever be um, taken to court for their crimes. Mm -hmm. Which, when you think about that, is insane. These people tortured the Brazilians. These people censored the Brazilians. These people threw Brazil into hell. And when the military dictatorship ended, they were like, oh, that was very nice, guys. They shook our hands, and then they went back to work. And they were just allowed to continue. And so this kind of thought symbolized by like Montero Lobato's book, it just managed to like hide itself in different ways into Brazil's subconscious. It never left. It never left. It's still there and it's still strong. And it's terrifying. Like mm -hmm. as much bad shit as this book says about America, about the United States, it says 10 times worse about Brazil. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's sort of interesting because that's the – I think my main thing is I keep on – as I was reading, I kept on sort of trying to balance uh, – or maybe not balance, but I was like holding two thoughts in my head at the same time, which was, you know, this is what he thinks of the US and is projecting forward and – wait a minute, but that also sort of reflects on what he thinks of himself as a Brazilian. Yeah. And that is sort of, I, that's the thing. I, I, because it's fiction, um, you know, sometimes you, you want to give someone the benefit of the doubt. But from what I'm hearing from you. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't think uh, there's anything to save here. I mean, yeah. I'm also not that kind of person who's like, let's burn these books. Uh, that's such a straw man point. Uh, I'm sorry mm -hmm. about that. But like, I do think we should acknowledge this. I mean, it's only been until like 2010 when people started actually talking out and about about how this guy is racist. And even in his children's book, there are racist things. Mm -hmm. And so there's this is and a lot of and again, a lot of why Bolsonaro was elected is because the people some people were like, oh, we don't want to talk about that. Like, things are great. Things are perfect. Yeah. You're was seeing some great. of that right now yeah. here. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, you mean well. you mean that that's here too? Wait a minute. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, like that. It's it's really good timing. It's like we're at the the election is done, and like the the joke everybody says is now everybody wants to go to brunch. But there's something very real happening there where people want things to go back to normal for them which means not feeling scared and not worrying about the future and just paying attention to your own life. And that it's a path we can't afford to take. Right. I mean, I think that I, I can sometimes sympathize with that feeling. Uh, I, I am not excusing it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and to my, to my, uh, in my feelings, uh, or at least in my estimation, I should say, um, I, I think about like these people that are, you know, oh, well, I couldn't have taken four more years of that. 
maybe that's true. I don't know. I don't know what anyone's struggle is. You know, it's not always readily apparent. But um, if, if, for instance, you are, you know, well off, you have a job that you can remotely work from, you know, you've got a house, you've got everything that you need. Um, you know, at what point do I say, well, that seems a little performative compared to someone who's facing, you know, downright eviction for, you know, the situation that we're in. Um, their, their struggle is much, much more than yours. Uh, and, and for sure, you know, I'm not sure that they could take four more years of that, but you just wanted to not have to think about it anymore. I'd, I'd like to say something, not, not in defense of the author, but just sort of an acknowledgement of just the facts with literature. It's like, if you think about all of the writing in science fiction and in actual literature at the time, the idea that this book is hella racist is not exceptional. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. if you like Jack London was oh, very racist in his own spaces. H.G. Wells was the original eugenicist. Mm-hmm. The time machine. Yeah, absolutely. Well, not not only that, but think of it because the the I think that the issue that I was drawing here is, for instance, in one of the parts, and I didn't jot it down because it was just so awful. Uh, he talks about um, the the future of the U.S. being that of being afraid of being replaced. And that ties immediately back to H.G. Wells, who framed the entire invasion of War of the Worlds as one of being replaced by Martians. Mm-hmm. This is a replace, like basically the entire framing of War of the Worlds is a replacement one. And that is horribly racist. And, and the thing is, he thought he was being sort of progressive for his time. And, and perhaps he was, because he's saying, look, we're doing these things to, you know, for instance, our colonies, what if they decided to come back on us? And, you know, so to speak, uh, the, the chickens come home to roost, so to speak, you know? Yeah. But perhaps using that frame is not useful. Well, I, I, one of the reasons that I pick, <clears throat> sorry about that. One of the reasons I picked this book is because of that connection to Wells. Um, like I said, a lot of early Brazilian sci-fi was inspired by Wells. We mentioned that book at the beginning where the guy literally has Wells as one of his characters. And in this book, the reason why he hears about the pa- uh, the future of the United States is because the professor's daughter is like, if you write this in a book, you'll get a lot of money. And 200 <laughs> years from now, people will hail you as a, as a genius. But all you'll be doing is writing about what you saw in the future. And there's a moment where I think he says like, oh, like a Wells novel, but it'll be real for me. It, it, it's very much kind of like he, Montero Lobato read Wells and I was like, I can do that too. But worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but <laughs> well, I, was, I was thinking about Wells specifically because I'm, I think it was you, Carlo, who put out this tweet talking about how like, well, the world isn't that progressive as people like to spout. Like this, it, it's still not this perfect narrative that people like to frame it as of like, what if the British went through what they were doing? Don't you want to think about colonialism and all that? I think you had a tweet about that. I, I think mine was actually uh, about Star Trek, but yes, the point stands. Yeah. And I was thinking um, about how, uh, and that made me think about how one of the movies that kind of made me get into sci-fi and made me, and also kind of made me slowly awaken to the reality of how the world works was 
2005 World of the Worlds, um, mm. which I still consider one of my favorite movies in all time. And I will go on a limb. If you hate that movie, add me on Twitter. I will make you like that movie. Uh, <laughs> it is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I think it's honestly Spielberg's last great movie, uh, mm. <laughs> if you ask me. But that movie, I remember watching it for the first time. I mean, for the second time, because the first time I watched it when he got to the scene with the tripods, I was just so scared. I could not watch the rest of the movie. The mm. second time I watched it, I remember seeing all those scenes where Spielberg takes those um, images that people were probably seeing on their news programs of like things that America was arguably doing to uh, I'm not sure, Iraq and puts those images in an American context. And I remember seeing that and thinking, man, that is terrifying. Like imagine if suddenly just like this amazing, powerful force, which I have nothing to do, I cannot do anything against it, came in and destroyed my country. And that made me think like, wait a second, like, but that's kind of what America is a bit doing to to the other countries. And I started mm-hmm. kind of going through that process that everyone goes where they start to realize that the world isn't as simple as you thought it was. And mm-hmm. it's all because of that movie. And a movie right. which comes from a novel which ostensibly didn't really want to say that in the first place. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that, that's really interesting. Um, Pete, did you have anything else that you well, wanted to add? Yeah, I I think you guys have been really good people in this, and we've done a deep dive into this hell novel. Yeah, and we deserve a palate cleanse. Yes. yes. <laughs> so I mean, uh, where should we go? Should we, um, uh, Carlo? You mentioned, uh, uh, oh God, what did you mention? Oh, d- the Dungeons and Dragons thing, or we could talk about uh, yes. uh the pod, wherever you want to go. Yeah. Um, I- I think I think we'd we'd ask Michelle because uh, Michelle, you you'd mentioned that there's a lot of stuff, yes. sci-fi and fantasy related, that is super popular in Brazil that is just is gone from from existence in the U.S. Yes, let's talk uh, about one that. of those. One of those, like you mentioned, uh, is Dungeons and Dragons, the animated show. Uh, to the point where I already show this to Carlos, but I love showing this to people. A few years back one of the big car companies, I don't remember which one, they wanted to make like an ad advertising their car for young people. And they literally did like a sequel to the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon, but in live action. And they put that out there for the people and it became this immensely popular commercial. And again, this is <laughs> this is like an, an official live action sequel to a 20, 30 year old cartoon that nobody in America has thought about for the past 15 years. I love that. Yeah. I thought I thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, nobody who's going to make car commercials thought about that. Well, that's that's absolutely certain, yeah. I, I mean, I I was just going to say that it's sort of hilarious, and I'll, we'll we'll include it in the show notes. But it's sort of hilarious that all they needed was, uh, I believe, it's a Peugeot to drive out of yeah. the D and D world. They drive out of the D and D world. They're chased by the I forgot his name, the bad guy, Ven- Venger, 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 who is was dubbed by the. They got the original guy to dub him, and the oh, guy oh, is like, yeah, like the original Brazilian dubber. That is, so they oh, okay. got him like out of retirement. The guy, this guy who also did, he also dubbed the voices of like. Scooby-Doo and the Grim Reaper and that Bill and, Billy and Mandy cartoon. I don't know what it's called. But oh, this guy, yeah. they took him out of retirement to make a voice for a commercial of a cartoon that's still very popular in Brazil. <laughs> we should absolutely link that commercial to the show notes. That would be awesome. Yeah. And it's, it's really cool. Yeah. It's one of the other things that I think is 
popular in Brazil, but not really everywhere else, is, and I'm going to take a little bit to make this point, but Epcot. So you guys know what Epcot is, right? Yep. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, so Epcot is the second theme park in Walt Disney World. <laughs> Sorry, uh, I just have to spit whenever I say that name. <laughs> uh, so Epcot is this insane thing. It is insane. Every time I think about what Epcot is, my brain explodes. You have to understand that there was a guy in the 50s called Walt Disney who was like, I'm going to make my own city. And then he died of cancer. And then his company was like, he promised a city. I guess we should kind of build it. And then they just settled for a theme park. And they built this theme park that's supposed to be about the future. And so for everyone who went there in the 80s and 90s, that theme park was kind of their image of the future for a long while. Epcot is kind of in i speaking maybe i'm speaking too much for myself than other people but epcot really defined my view of science fiction my view of science fiction is a giant fucking golf ball <laughs> and <laughs> and and pavilions themed after types of uh sciences and the, re- the fact that this is all the result of a bunch of business people being like, I guess he promised the city we should kind of do something. It just breaks my brain. It <laughs> well, just it's, it's, it's It's basically they, they took it's a small world ride and they expanded it. Yeah. But see, instead of instead of actually having world cultures and stuff like that, you, you can buy food that's Chinese or Japanese or you know, whatever other countries there are. Do you, do you guys know about the Disney beaches? Uh, uh, no. What do you mean Disney beaches? I might well, I might know that. Oh well, I mean if you if you go, if you go through the one in Florida, is that Disneyland? Yeah, the Disney that's, World. No, Disney that's World. Disney World. When you go through Disney World, there's a number of places where you can you can actually go on a like a beach there, and there was sand there originally, but they didn't like the color. So they went through with bulldozers and completely tore it out and replaced it with sand that they liked the color of. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Honestly, when I was reading this book, uh, Montero about this book, I thought about Fordlandia. And I thought about how so many of these people who were kind of associated with early sci-fi, or at least in the 40s and 50s, were obsessed with creating the perfect society. Like Walt Disney was a huge friend of Ray Bradbury. Mm-hmm. Like Ray Bradbury, I just it just kind of melts my brain a little how these people sat together and they were like, let's imagine the future. Well, it's going to be like now, like we're still going to be in power, but there's going to be all these technologies and all this going to be different. But the politics are just going to be the pretty much the same. Like none of these people could imagine different politics, but they could imagine the Internet. <laughs> it, it's just. <laughs> It just, again, it's a very interesting thing personally for me, um, especially that uh, the whole like idea of trying to make your own city, which I also, which I think is probably one of the very few uniquely American concepts, you know? Well, I mean, if you think about um, sort of like the streak of utopian communities, uh, was it in the late uh, 19th century, early 20th, if I'm not mistaken? Um, you know, I, I do believe that there's something about walking away from the city or whatever and building your own community that uh, is very science fiction-ish. It's a, it's a science fictional idea of creating like this utopia. Um, 
the the thing here is that you know if you if you've read up anything about you know how how many like Morlock tunnels, so to speak, run under uh, Disney World to make sure that if you spit out your gum on the on the ground or flick a cigarette somewhere, somebody like comes up out of the ground and grabs it, <laughs> like some sort of weird Truman show. Um, you know, it, it, we just needed a gigantic multinational, multi-billion-dollar uh, uh, company to do that. Not even that, Carlo. You just needed Brazil circa nineteen sixty. Oh, that's true. Yes, our <laughs> capital, Brasilia, is the planned city. If you look at Brasilia, uh, our capital, if you look at the buildings, a part of my brain kind of associates it with that Epcot style, those big white buildings that are designed mm. to look futuristic. Brasilia is a planned city. If you look at it from above, mm. it looks kind of like a bird. But the mm. thing that they don't really go into, well, they went into detail for Brasilia, with Brasilia when they taught me about it in school, is that there's all these satellite cities that essentially keep the city working. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's not this perfect place where nobody has to leave. We all have our culture inside the city, and it's amazing. Like, it depends on all these workers living that live outside of the city coming in and keeping it running. And I, I when I first went to Brasilia which was after the first time I went to Disney World, I remember being like, like, damn, this is this is just Epcot. There's places that look like Epcot buildings. It just feels like this dream come true of like a city on the on a bubble. Mm-hmm. And it's well, completely mean, empty. It's just, it's a weird place. I, I can imagine. I mean, like, so I, I sort of stumbled across, and I, I don't know if I made this up or whatever. I'm not going to claim that, but... You know, I, I talked about specifically in science fiction, there's this sort of desire to hide labor. Um, and it's always like, oh, it's robots. It's it's automation. It's this and that. And I, I just said, well, that's sort of like chrome washing. You're chrome washing like away any any sort of evidence that there are people that work, you know, and, and it, uh, the reason I came up with that is uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of like the um, – it's called, I believe, Kiwi Robots or something like that, that um, were delivering like burritos and shit like that in Ber- on Berkeley's campus in California. And there's these little cute little, um, you know, wheeled sort of w- robots that have like a little Wally type of face, mm-hmm. uh, if you will. And um, the the thing that sort of that cute little face hides is the fact that there's some Brazil. I'm not Brazilian, uh, some Colombian uh, guy or girl or woman or whomever just working remotely, like moving that little robot around. Yeah. And, and probably being paid, you know, like pennies on the dollar for, you know, what is probably some excruciating work. Uh, But it's sort of like it feeds directly into that idea. And like you're you're talking about Brazilian, it's just that, but on a huge scale. Yeah, and in this book, we also like like we mentioned, he talks a lot about how in the future everything is going to be transmitted by radio, and he talks about how there's not going to be any more commutes. Uh, the streets are gonna are gonna go be be sent back to the people, and it's this vision of like, oh, the people are just gonna walk the streets, and it's gonna be lovely. It's gonna be plants everywhere. And in my head, I was looking like, well. What about homeless people? Where do they go? Like, what about people who commute in from this, from outside the city? Where do they go? It's just, it's this well, desire to kind of like 
we don't think about it. Just don't think, <laughs> don't well, think I mean, about also, how this works. Also, like the it's a, it's sort of also like a false frame, right? Because yeah. wait, the 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 streets didn't belong to the people to begin with. What, yeah, what do you mean? <laughs> Why are you coming up with this well, idea in the book? Like the book, you, you you he starts off by being like, there are two types of people in this world: there are pedestrians and there are people with cars. And he basically treats pedestrians like an inferior race. That's why, honestly, when this book was starting and he was like talking about pedestrians as ants, comparing them <laughs> to like uh, mindless beings, like robots, I thought, is this going to be like a parody? Is this going to be like a satire? Because it sounds like the same arguments you would use for races. Them, they just if, trans, they just put those on like pedestrians. If only like we'd reach the end of the book and it says this is a, a parody, parody, a parody, parody. <laughs> this this actually happened in Minecraft. You know, if only. But no, this is. I believe this is deadly earnest. Yeah. Well, let, sh- should we turn back towards uh, like another yet another palate cleanser? <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, I'm sorry so much for taking so much of. The, the 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 speech here and well oh, you're the guest sentence made absolutely no sense <laughs> so the one thing i wanted to talk about also the other thing i want to talk about is just a, a couple of things that i remember about how i learned about sci-fi when i was young um do is penguin classics a thing here in the u.s you yes. know those yeah i always mm-hmm. thought those were amazing the idea of like just making these old books available to people and usually it was also how i first learned english penguin classics and i was thinking about like how did i first start reading sci-fi and fantasy and what came to mind was this book this fantasy book that i think it's spanish or well i I do know for a fact it's not english so let me just figure out what that book is uh where that book is from okay so it's a spanish book and it's called finis mundi uh and the idea of the book, which I think is honestly the book that got me started in, in, in fantasy, like literally the book I read after this one was Frankenstein. And that was when I was hooked, absolutely hooked in this kind in the style of uh, writing. It's a book that takes place in the year 999 in Europe. And it's about this monk who has to travel uh, around the world and not all around the world, around Europe. And he has to basically get out these jams to stop the end of the world and it's a very straightforward fantasy story he has allies and he has to find the gems and there's the person who wants the world to end because the world's going to end in the year a thousand but overall i remember being this very like fascinating story that took me to the past and that gave me a different point of view and that to me has always been the way i see sci-fi and fantasy it also didn't. It also didn't help that the main character has the same name as me. It's Michelle, uh, but <laughs> that's how I saw sci-fi and fantasy. It's this capability of looking outside of your own self. Well, this kind of applies to all fiction, but to me, that's mostly what sci-fi does well. Where you look outside of your own self and you imagine different beings, different worlds, and different point of view, points of views. The one thing I could not reconcile with that. The one thing that kind of broke my brain when reading this book is why are so many sci-fi writers complete racists, you know? (laughs) Like, the exercise you have to do to write a sci-fi book, it requires a lot of self-knowledge. But the people who write these books are incredibly, like, they lack the self-awareness. You think of, like, Orson Scott Scott Card being a homophobic. You think about the guy who wrote Starship Troopers being a fascist. And it's like, so many of these sci-fi writers are racists. And I don't know why. 
I was hoping you two, as more as more experienced readers, had some sort of answer because I just couldn't figure out why so many people who write sci-fi and to a certain extent fantasy, like they're racist. I've I've got a theory. I don't know if Carlo agrees with it, but it it's kind of depressing. Which is if you want uh, what a science fiction science fiction writer wants to do is to convince other people of a better world. But that doesn't mean that... That doesn't mean they have a good one. You know what I mean? It's uh-huh. like anybody who can, can pick up those tools, and a lot of people who want to are horrible. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I would probably say that that's not... I, I don't think I disagree with that. Um, I would also say and add that uh to a certain extent the the art like the the craft of fiction requires you to allow yourself a permission to play um and the problem with that is that if you do not have that self-reflection or you you're only thinking to a certain extent of the sort of uh what am I looking for here? The, the hypotheticals and you're just using, because I don't know if you've had someone that, you know, or someone that you've worked with be like, well, no, no, good. Why are you getting offended? I'm just being hypothetical. (laughs) And they're being like racist. And you're like, dude, no, that, that, that's not hypothetical. You got to get rid of that. And they, they want to really play with that. And that's to a certain extent, a part of that, um, that, racial consciousness but not in a good way uh is often reflected in sci-fi in the u.s at the very least because there is that that conflict still uh is usually you know fobbed off to oh blue skinned aliens or you know they're purple you know they're they're not really you know like if you look at the original klingons you know you're like well they look mongolian like Mongolian raiders that went to space and then they're also sort of coded sort of black or generically not white. And you're like, it doesn't seem right. <laughs> you know, and it, and it's sort of weird uh, that that is sort of allowed because it's like, it's sort of racist, but it's in a way that is presented. That's like, obviously silly. They're on another planet. This isn't the real world, but it's obviously the real world because the fact of the matter is that all science fiction uh, is always writing about the moment right now. It's sort of projecting or extrapolating stuff that's happening right now into the future. And, you know, for the most part, especially in, sort of stories that are if this if this goes on type of narratives that's exactly what they're doing they're writing about right now that's why i think uh carlo you didn't know this but i was literally setting you up to give me ammo for this the hottest take this podcast has ever witnessed oh let's hear it that's why i think ready player one is the most prescient work of fiction of our of our time (laughs) okay okay Uh, please expand i'm gonna give you the floor sir here's the thing (laughs) I am the only person I know who actively defends Ready Player One. Here's the caveat. I don't think it's a good story. And I don't think Ernest Klein is some kind of uh, like secret genius who wrote a satire that we're just too dumb to look at. I don't think any of that. I do think Ernest Klein, however, is that one-of-a-kind genius who 
doesn't choose to be this, is just chosen to be the avatar of a generation. And I don't think there's any better avatar of a generation than this person who takes stories and treats them the same way a corporate board of executives would, except he knows how to craft a story and not a business memo or a marketing press release. I mean, a craft a story, quote unquote. So the world of Ernest Klein is a world where literally the real world is like so swept aside that on the first, if you go watch the Ready Player One movie, don't do that actually. The first <laughs> few minutes of the movie is like, the world sucks. We couldn't fix it. Eh. Remember these things? Remember these properties? And I feel like that's such a perfect distillation of our current time that we are all going through hell world. But because we don't want to deal with the fact that we're going to hell world, we retreat and we deal with these stories. And because we don't want to actually deal with these stories and what they're talking about, we just see them as these superficial items. They are there for us to collect, they are there for us to display, but are not there for us to analyze. It's knowing all the lines to Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but not thinking about what Monty Python actually wanted to say, who Monty Python actually was. Like... Ready Player One has these chapters dedicated to literally recreating books, but you never see them talking about recreating movies, but you never see them talking about the people who made these movies. The mm -hmm. protagonist of Ernest Klein lists out a bunch of people who did 80s movies, but like he doesn't talk about them. He lists out John Hughes, but he doesn't talk about the fact that John Hughes was kind of a Republican and his movies are a bit weird. And like... Breakfast Club is this distillation of youth, and it's perfect, but it has no black people or no people of color, and it's in, in, set in Chicago. Set, yeah, <laughs> and, and, which, which is which is not known to be you know sort of like a, a the white ethno state of Chicago. You know, it's it's surrounded by black. It'd be like having a totally white cast in Balt in a Baltimore setting. You know, exactly. And to me, the 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 two big, biggest examples of why Ready Player One is this perfect avatar of our culture right now is the fact that when they made it a movie, Steven Spielberg, who is a guy from this culture, was like, this is too self-congratulatory. I gotta put other shit in here. And so he put in other uh, prop, uh, prop properties from other decades. He put in Overwatch, which is in the movie for some reason. Like, yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. 60 years from now, people are really going to be freaking out about Tracer from Overwatch. But he put Overwatch. He put, like, the Joker and Harley Quinn. He put all these characters. He put the Iron Giant and all that. And I don't know if the Iron Giant was actually in the book. I don't remember. Because he was like, this is too self-congratulatory. I do not agree with this. But by doing that, he essentially stripped the book of the little representation of our of our world it has so it transformed the book into these bland this bland and i lacking of identity and it just became the celebration of all things ip and just like the book it became this hollow thing but in a different way the fact Let's that see. all these i sorry sorry the fact i'm just wrapping it up here the, no, fa the fact that this ernest klein wrote a book where literally everything he likes is in it Everything, absolutely every single thing he likes is in it, and it doesn't amount to shit. That it's a story that <laughs> nobody remembers, that nobody cares about, and then in the end of the world, the end of the book, nothing changes. It's absolutely just, nothing changes. It's Game Master Anthony's birthday party. 
It is, like, but but the difference the, the difference here is that game after game master Anthony was actually happy at the end of his birthday. Actually, that's a good point. You know, I mean, I've Ernest a- Klein. <laughs> I, I, Ernest Klein seems to me like the guy who has the Galactus Funko Pop, but when told uh, that that was created by Jack Kirby, he's like, "Who's that? Who the fuck is that guy?" And fuck him anyway. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think it's that. I don't think. I don't think he doesn't. I think he's dumb. I don't think. Well, okay. Please get that out. I don't think Ernest Klein is dumb. I also don't think he's smart either. <laughs> Ernest fair. Klein is to me the representation of our times of the 2020s of maybe the beginning of the 21st century because he was given the keys to the set, to the to the playground. He was given the keys to the kin, he, kingdom. He wrote a book that was all of his dreams and he got the guy who made his dreams come true to make a movie out of his book and it amounted to nothing. And he's not happy and he's writing a sequel which comes out two weeks from now because Ugh. he needs money again. And he's not satisfied. And I don't think there's any better symbol to our world than somebody who gets everything they ever wanted gets every property gets every ip in the world puts them all in his hands and at the end of the day looks at it and is like i'm not happy have you read this article called a decade of sore winners no i have not i'm gonna include it in the show notes but because because it's exactly what you're talking about it's it's sort of the, the that mentality of uh, you know, like all the the MCU stands who get really mad when people say, "Well, you know, the MCU is the they're 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 movies, sure, but are they cinema with a capital C?" And you're like, mm, "Probably not, not really." And they get mad at that. They they want to be validated, like somehow they need a prize for for dominating the entirety of the market. Yeah, like on top of everything else, it's it's not enough that the only thing you can go out to see is like Marvel movies or whatever, uh, or superhero movies or what have you. They want to you to be enthused about it and tell them that they're actually really smart because these are brilliant cinema. And you're like, eh, maybe, I don't know. Well, the, the, the <laughs> fucked up thing is that the people who gave those nerds that sense of inferiority are the same people who are feeding off their desire to be recognized it was a bunch of corporate people in the room that were like this is for kids and then 20 years later they were like wow if we just pretend that these are actual really fantastic movies we can get these suckers to buy so much more please if you're listening to this and you like marvel movies you're you're allowed to like marvel movies don't defend marvel it's like (laughs) they're a giant multinational company they don't need you please yeah. well and, and if they want if they want to defend themselves that's one thing they, they're just offshoring their sort of pr to the fans yeah. and it's sort of gross and stupid and again another instance of chrome washing where we are now somehow burdened with the uh with the the duty to defend these things it's like no fuck that i don't i'm not gonna work for marvel fuck that so, Not for free, anyway. Oh, sorry. I, Before you go on. Sorry, sure. sorry, sorry. No problem. Uh, just one last thing. What I said about Marvel, if you are a Disney theme park fan, same thing goes. It's okay that <laughs> I'm also like you. I'm a sucker. I know the names of all the Disney Imagineers, and I know everyone who did every ride. Disney does not is not worth of your defense. They just fired 28,000 people. Just don't. <laughs> so... Uh, Michelle, I would like to invite you back to talk about a specific book if you're down for it. Um, Ready Player Two? 
uh, down <laughs> and out, it. <laughs> down and out in the Magic Kingdom by Cory Doctor, right? Yeah, I've always wanted to read it. Oh well, let's let, let's do it. You know, it it basically talks about them taking over, like a bunch of people going in and taking over the theme park after it had gone it had gone under. I that is. I'm going to say something that might destroy my opportunities of future employment in Hollywood, but that is my dream, honestly. My dream is that in the future, there's a government that's like, corporations are not a thing. And suddenly Disneyland becomes a national park and it doesn't cost $700 for you to go there. And everyone is allowed to go there. And I can finally be like, look, there's actual art here. There's actually, I know this, oh my God, I hate myself for saying this because it just feels like I'm defending this fucking company. (laughs) I I hate this society that we live in. But like, there's so much work and actual labor, actual artistic labor being put into these places that we can't recognize because the only people we recognize when we do that are like the the executives, are like corporate people. I hate that. I want people to know who Tony Baxter was. I want people is. I want people to know who Bob Girl is. I don't want people to know who Bob Iger is. Right. Or, or, or uh, Perlmutter either. Ugh. So, uh, Michelle, let's say somebody gets to this episode, end of this episode, and they they like you more than us. Where can they get more of you? Uh, go to therapist. Well, because I talk too much. <laughs> <laughs> so. That that please, is a <laughs> please help Michelle pay for his therapy. I mean, look, I, there were moments while I was talking that I just wanted to punch myself and tell myself to stop talking. <laughs> no, you've been great. This has been a really good episode. I, I'm supposed to say those things when we're off the air, but it, like you've been wonderful. I just I just want to make sure that people can find your podcast and that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, you can check out. This kind, my voice and the voice of two other very smart people called Arthur and Mike. We host a podcast called Full Metal Analysts, and it's an episode by episode recap of a Japanese anime called Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, which is a very good example of um, sci fantasy. I don't know what the genre is. I feel bad because we actually asked Carlo to be in an episode and we asked him if Full Metal Alchemist was sci fi or fantasy, and I don't remember what you <laughs> said. I think you said it was fantasy. I'm pretty sure it's fantasy, yeah. yeah. It's this work of fantasy that takes the concept of alchemy and is like, it it lures you in, promising you a cool show about people using magic to do cool fights, and then it circuit punches you into watching a show about a fascist na- a fascist nation and its secret plan to consume all of, it, all of its people and how fascism and maybe all sorts of politics are just like play things for insane godlike beings who see humans as ants and it's a great show it's a great show oh, very g- cool given give, given alchemy's uh, insistence on perfecting and purifying and making things into gold i think it's a good metaphor for that yeah. type of story it, it does get it also does get a little bit into that territory oh my god sorry my english sometimes just breaks my the territory can somebody say the word? Thank you. Territory. <laughs> My English says that. Or it's like, I don't know what you're trying to say. Somebody needs to say it. It does get into the territory of a little bit of race where there is like in the world of Full Metal Alchemist, there is this ethnicity of people who are literally genocided against what before the show began. And mm-hmm. they become major players in the world of the show. And it does 
it does talk a lot about like in relation to what you, we said about Ready Player One about having all these things and being empty. It does do that thing where instead of being just a, a, a shonen anime or a regular fighting anime where there's cool magic powers but nobody ever thinks about the cool magic powers, Full Metal Alchemist is a show that actually sits down and thinks about the cool magic powers in a way that like Ernest Klein could never do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's all right. Uh, I. I think that's great. I've actually, um, I've got to confess, I haven't listened to the podcast. I've been waiting to listen to Carlo's episode, but based on the conversation we've had today, I'm, I'm definitely going to do a deeper dive. It sounds like a lot of fun. I do suggest skipping the first like four episodes because it takes a while for us to get into it. <laughs> but after like episode four, we really start getting into uh, the way that the podcast works. I'm talking yeah, about the podcast. Yeah. You can say the same thing about this one, man. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Every podcast takes a lot to, to, to work out. Every podcast. I, any final thoughts, guys? Uh, don't, don't read this book. Do not read <laughs> this book. Read book. <laughs> if you want to read the book, if you want to read the book, first of all, again, don't. Second, <laughs> do not buy it on Amazon. It's $1, but do not buy it. Uh, although I feel bad. I mean, the guy has been dead for like 70 years. The money's probably going to the translator, who I feel even better, worse for, because imagine translating this. You have to read it twice. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> uh, if, you do, if you are interested in reading, if you, in getting into uh, Brazilian literature, this is such a like normie recommendation. This is such a normcore recommendation. But I do recommend looking into writers like José Alencar. Um, uh, I do recommend looking into writers like Machado de Assis. Looking into these writers who wrote these books, they're not sci-fi and fantasy books. They're more like normal quote-unquote fiction books but they're they're they possess the level of social critique and social awareness that montero lobato could only dream of ever having uh yeah i, I recommend those I, I was nervous there for a second that you're gonna recommend paulo coelho no for the love of god do not read paulo coelho for the love of God. <laughs> I, I, I needed to, to troll you just a tiny bit no no look paulo coelho is like do you guys know who Romero Brito is? I don't. Uh, sounds familiar, but I don't remember. He's now. the guy who did all those. Um, if you put his name on Google, you'll see it's that style of painting where it's all just this really uh, super colorful blocks forming things. Hold on. Mm -hmm. I'm going to send you a picture and you know exactly who it is. Uh, hold on a second. It's exciting audio, but here it is. So this guy. Romero Brito is like the most popular uh, Brazilian artist right now. Do not buy his shit, too, because <laughs> it's like it's like that. Paulo Coelho is like Romero Brito. You know, if it's your first time, you're going to get a bad idea of what Brazil is like. If it's oh, your second I time, you're way too old for him. Do not. Yeah, <laughs> this definitely looks very corporatized type of cheerful. Oh, absolutely. Also, he is a Bolsonaro supporter, so he can go rot in hell. There you Yay. go. And that's, <laughs> go. that's probably the best place to leave it. Uh, <laughs> Michelle, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a treat. Thank you for having me. 